0: Well, good morning on this 28th day of March 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for including me in your day. So on Saturday in a speech in Poland, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, after delivering what was actually a very good speech, he ad-libbed. And the ad-libbing at the end of the speech um, is a problem. So at the end of the speech, the president of the United States added just a handful of words, two handfuls of words, in fact. But in uh, the midst of those words, well, he did invoke God four times, which no one else is talking about, by the way. But President Biden did, in his unscripted comments, invoke God four times. So that's notable. But that's not what everybody's talking about. What everybody's talking about is this. Um, He said that President Vladimir Putin of Russia, quote, cannot remain in power. And when the president of the United States says of another sitting head of state that that person cannot remain in power, um, what everybody around the world hears is that the president of the United States is calling for regime change in another country. It's, you know defensible that you would think this way and that you would want there to be someone else in charge of uh, the country that is uh, currently um, strafing Ukraine and its people it's it's reasonable to think it is absolutely um indefensible to say for the president of the United States so I thought that today um because this is going to uh, be a part of lots of conversations. We might just take a moment to remind ourselves, um, because wars start for many, 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 all kinds of reasons. Wars begin for all kinds of reasons, some of them good, some of them ridiculous. Wars begin for all kinds of reasons. Anyone can start a war. But wars all end the same way. At some point, a new balance of power is recognized and realized and some kind of negotiated agreement is reached about that new balance of power. And to the victor go the spoils, whatever those are, and to the victor go the right to redraw the lines, not only geographically in many cases, but all kinds of requirements can be placed on the nation or group of nations that suffer defeat in war. Consider what happened at the end of World War I or at the end of World War II negotiated settlements are reached. Treaties are signed. A new balance of power is mutually agreed upon. So words matter and ideas matter and peace proposals matter and treaties matter. And what we say in public and what we say in back-channel communication matters. And what we say to one another's faces matters. And what we say behind one another's backs matters. So in this world with devils filled, um, power matters as well. And so although there are many, many people who um, certainly wish that power didn't matter anymore or that power wasn't the way that the world still works, um, power is held by those who, for whatever reasons, have access to and manage the weapons that are capable of literally changing the world. And right now, one of the powers that be is a guy named Vladimir Putin in a nation named Russia. And no matter how long the war in Ukraine rages on, this I know, it will eventually end with some kind of negotiated agreement between the two sides and maybe a number of other nations. There was a balance of power in place before Russia invaded Ukraine. That balance of power existed for just a handful of decades. Prior to that, there was a different balance of power, After this, there will be a different balance of power as well. One of the power brokers shifted in his seat a little over a month ago, and he is seeking to redraw lines that he didn't like. That's actually how nations and empires rise and fall. It has literally been this way since the fall of man. Beyond the Garden, east of Eden, there is war, and we all live east of Eden. So goading the guy who is currently seeking to reclaim territory and people that he believes should be part of a unified motherland is not a demonstration of, of diplomatic or global leadership nor wisdom. You don't poke the bear with whom you are going to have to at one time or another find a way to make peace. So my encouragement to us today is that we would be peacemakers. We would be the people who sow peace in our conversations, in our relationships, and that we would be m- mindful Although we love that passage from Isaiah that talks about beating swords into plowshares and um, uh, learning war no more, we don't often talk about the complementary passage in the third chapter of the prophet Joel, where the opposite declaration is made. Proclaim this among the nations, says the prophet Joel. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Let them beat their plowshares into swords. Yeah, we don't talk about this one very often. Let them beat their pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations. There's a judgment coming. There is war. We have not yet arrived at the place where the time and place where all of the swords, And weapons of war are beat into plowshares. Nope, we might be in just the opposite day, maybe even the days of the prophet Joel. All right, joining us next, uh, Pastor Dean and Sarah from City Church, Tallahassee. We're going to talk about what he's preaching about at his church. Um, And I'm going to ask him the question that was asked of the Supreme Court nominee. Um, I'm going to ask him to judge his faith on a scale of 1 to 10. Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dean Sarah is among other things, pastor of City Church Tallahassee. He's also an author. Dean, welcome back.
1: Hey Carmen, it's great to be back. Good morning.
0: Good morning. All right. So on a scale of one to ten, um, how would you even begin to answer a question about rating your faith?
1: I, what well, I think that's a terrible question, first of all, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but I think it can help us think theologically, and I think it actually does matter and can be helpful for Christians to think through, and I would hope that any professing person in Jesus Christ would say on a scale from 1 to 10 that their faith is a 10, uh, because our faith is in a person, and that person is Jesus so as long as our faith is anchored in him it's as secure as it possibly can be uh, and therefore it's a 10 now if we're talking about our performance uh and how we're living the christian life that's going to change hour by hour <laughs> but the big picture of our faith is jesus uh, so my faith on a scale from 1 to 10 is a 10 Uh, because I am saved by grace through faith, and it's not my own, so that no one can boast. So I confidently say that, not because my faith is never um, shaken, or not that I've never had a moment of weakness or doubt in my life, but because my faith is in a person, and that is Jesus. So I I confidently can say to you, it's a 10, because Jesus is a 10. (laughs) So that's my answer.
0: So because I knew you and I were going to have this conversation today, I just randomly asked this question to a bunch of people. Um, yep. here were some of the answers that I got that I totally loved. Um, first of all, people like furrow their brow because, you know, very actually very few people know that uh, there's even a Supreme Court nominee, let alone that people are asking her questions. And <laughs> they certainly don't know they asked her this. So um, nobody really knows the context of the conversation. So when you just ask the question, hey, you know, I'm just really curious, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how do you uh, you know, how do you judge your faith or rate your faith? Um, one guy said, you know what? Um, I can't put it on a scale of 1 to 10, but I can t- tell you that it's weighed in the balance, um, and God is not going to find me lacking because he's going to weigh me according to Jesus. So he took the word yeah. scale. I like, totally love that. Um, I had another um, woman who said, um, oh, scale of 1 to 10. Yeah, I don't really know how to do that, but I can tell you my faith is rock solid because it's on Jesus Christ, the solid rock I stand. And I thought to myself, these people are way better at this than I
1: am. Yeah, they get it. Yeah, They get, they get it. it, right? Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, but here's the thing, Carmen. In our culture right now, it's sort of a civic cultural Christianity, which, again, that's waning for sure. But in the government, you know, we still say things like, so help me God, you know, during uh, a swearing in. Uh, this idea of faith is going to be so generic, and it's going to be possible to claim a faith that's not tied to Christ. So that means the faith is going to be about you. So you're going to be able to go, well, I'm kind of a six today, or I'm a 2.5, when that's not a Christian understanding of faith.
0: Oh, see, that's so good. That's so helpful. I knew you would be able to help me with this. That's fantastic. All right, uh, Dean and Sarah and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about what he preached on yesterday and um, what Monday looks like for a pastor in the weeks leading up to Holy Week. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Pastor Dean and Sarah is in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Revelation, the Dear Church series, and I just thought we'd ask him this morning, um, you know, what did you talk about yesterday, and what does it mean for Jesus to be speaking to churches not just to individual Christians.
1: Yeah, well, I think the faith is corporate before it's anything else. we become so individualistic when it comes, yes, you must have your own born-again conversion, uh, but the letters of the Bible are written to churches, to congregations under leadership. Uh, And I think we have to be careful to to not individualize the faith. So Dear Church, uh, he's writing book Revelation to churches, So I tell our church when I preach it, I'll say, hey, look, this is to us, like to all of us in this congregation. It applies to us today, and it was written to a church in the first century. Uh, So book Revelation right now, we're almost almost preaching it to chill people out (laughs) a little bit, uh, because in the early 20th century, people started just sensationalizing the book in a way it was never really meant to be read. Uh, The book is more about strengthening the church and God's promises uh, fulfilled in the, from the Old Testament and to assure them that Jesus is coming again. It was never meant to confuse us or a puzzle to solve or to freak us out or this means this and this means that. that. That's not what the book was ever meant to be. And thankfully, there's sort of a returning back uh, to that I'm seeing across evangelicalism of not letting the book of Revelation be a paperback novel, you know, meant to sensationalize. So I, I think it's because that's what happens. Uh, when that's people's experience, because so Russia invades Ukraine, and all of a sudden I'm getting questions. This is, this is the book of Revelation, and I'm like, Why would we think that? <laughs> like, that's that, that, no, <laughs> you know, it, this is a, the book of Revelation is about Jesus. Uh, so, um, so that's been really good for our church. What we're doing is we're doing a different letter every week, it's a six week series. We're doing seven letters in six weeks, uh, to the individual churches. So we started with Ephesus. And yesterday we combined Sardis and Philadelphia, and we'll close out the series next week with Laodicea. It's been really great for our church.
0: I love that. So um, last week, one of the things that you said um, was a quote from Greg Beale. All of the letters, so he's talking about the, the churches, the letters to the churches in Revelation, all of the letters deal with the theme of faithfulness to Christ in the midst of an oft threatening or often threatening pagan culture. Um, talk, talk about how applicable that is to the days in which we live.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think Beale, for those out there who want to study Revelation, I think Beale writes the best stuff on it. It's my personal opinion. Uh, but here, first of all, I think it helps us realize we're not the first Christians to go through cultural chaos. Uh, we're not the first Christians to have a secular culture infiltrate us and to be tempted to join it. And we're not the first Christians to do that either. Uh, so I, I think what's helpful is we see real people in the book of Revelation who are part of real, actual churches that are struggling with some of the same things we're struggling with. And here is God calling them to press on, to hold on to what they've been given, which is the good news of the gospel, which is the faith delivered you know, once and for all to the saints, and to persevere. And that really is the common call to the church throughout the ages is to persevere and be reminded that God has kept all of his promises so we can trust him for the last promise that Jesus is going to return and make all things new and to force ourselves to actually be eternally minded, to be very present here and be faithful here, uh, but to actually anticipate the coming of Christ and to live our lives in light of that. Uh, So I think that those letters the chapters two and three are are extremely relevant to us today uh, because I think we see really the solution of how we're going to not just make it, but to live lives to the fullest and to flourish uh, here in a world that's not our own.
0: So Dean, Easter is um, fast approaching. I had a conversation with a young mom the other day. She was doing um, like a children's ministry thing at her church and she, <laughs> she said, okay, I'm clearly doing something wrong. And I'm like, why? And she's like, okay, because they want to know um, like, why does Jesus have to die again this year? Didn't Jesus die last year? <laughs> and I thought, okay, the rhythm of this is important. Like, talking about this is important. We do place a significant emphasis on Easter, on the lead up to Easter. Love for you to just talk about maybe how we think about, speak with, and relate to people who only join in corporate worship on Christmas and Easter. Um, we're going to see those people in the next couple of weeks. Um, Maybe there's an opportunity to invite them into a more robust experience of Christian life together. Um, But maybe just your thoughts as a pastor in the lead up to Easter.
1: It was bizarre what it's become in our culture. I mean, on Easter Sunday, we're declaring that Jesus rose from the grave and you're just going to come one time and give a hat tip and we're not going to see you again. It's like, wait a second here. We're not just saying that Jesus taught a good lesson. We're saying he rose from the dead. (laughs) It it really is bizarre. But here's here's the truth. I think it's really uh, detrimental uh, when a pastor or someone will give people a hard time when they come on Easter Sunday, uh, because I think we're wrongly assuming that they're Christians who just aren't taking it seriously, when I would argue the majority of the guests that come on Easter Sunday, they think they're Christians and they're not. You know, I call them unsaved Christians, meaning people who would claim to be Christian, but their reason for believing so has nothing to do with saving faith. So I think we need to look at it a different way, and that is these people who are coming are an answer to prayer. But we've been praying for our Easter services, and so many others across the country have, asking God to bring people that day. And here God answers our prayer, and people show up. Then we give them a hard time for coming. <laughs> you know, it's like, but I, I think we've got to reprogram our minds to see them as non-Christians. And why would someone who's not a Christian run in the door the next Sunday? It doesn't make any sense. They don't know Jesus. They just know customs and culture and ham at nanas and, you know, those type of things. And pastel shirts and family pictures. Uh, they're, they're more or less just celebrating spring is what they're doing. And, and going to church on Sunday is part of that expression. Uh, So I I think it's an amazing opportunity. So we have our Easter service at Florida State's basketball arena, Florida State University, uh, down here in Tallahassee, right in the main arena. And we'll get thousands. And we go all out for it because in our culture, we still see people being willing to go to church on Easter Sunday. And we say, man, this is going to be us a a chance to be as evangelistic as possible and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ in front of as many people as we can possibly get in this room. So we go all out. We love it. (laughs) So it's just a great opportunity.
0: Unsaved Christians is also um, the name of one of Dean's books, uh, The Unsaved Christian: Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. If you don't have a something that you're reading in anticipation of all the folks who are going to show up um, on Easter at your church where you worship on a regular basis, and you want to be prepared for them in a positive way, you want to understand them, um, and you want to be prepared to invite them. They, they're showing up as visitors who are open to a possibility. They're open to the possibility that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I mean, that is what Easter is all about. Uh, and so, this is our unique opportunity as Christians to welcome them um, and maybe uh, begin to cultivate a relationship with them that would result in them showing up again. Um, so, there you go. Uh, Dean, it's always so great to talk with you um, I had a conversation last week with Eric Ortland, one of uh ray ortland's sons and um and one of the things that he said just reminded me of you um He talked about how his dad would tell him he could pursue any passion or any path, but the one thing he could not be that he was not allowed to be was a mediocre christian and and I thought about you in relationship to that, and I just thought, you know what I think that 's what Dean is always trying to say to us you you can you can be anything, just don't be a mediocre Christian.
1: Oh yeah, my my, my dad used to say uh, we used to make if, if we made a C, like C as in Carmen, um, mm-hmm. on our report on our report card, my dad would get all over us and say C's are average. You and, and Sarah, we're not average, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and that's just about school. That's temporary, right? So if it comes to our faith. I, you know, we're 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 doing this, this dear church book Revelation series where where Jesus tells them, "I'd rather you be hot or cold, because if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth." I love the fact that Portland told his kids, "Look, and I'm not surprised, just knowing his character and who he is. Hey, you can go pursue anything you want to be, but guess what? You're not going to pursue a faith that's meaningless and a faith that doesn't change the world, right? So, so I I, th- I love that. <laughs> so I'm like, that's like you know just feed me more with something like that so, what, <laughs> so think good. about what would, what would it look like if, if if the church in general decided we're not going to be mediocre christians i mean so many of our it would just be a, it would be a game changer to use that old phrase you know I, it really would and that fires me up just thinking about it so i love that and let's make yeah. that for those of for our listeners today Let's make that true in our homes. And, and of course, Ortland also, I promise you, his father, uh, that his home was seasoned with grace and and, and with patience and all the grace and patience to spur on his children to not be mediocre Christians. And and let's say he's not driving with a whip to do that. Uh, He's doing it with love for God and love for others. and, And let's commit to having homes where that's real of us.
0: Yeah, he talked about um, that laughter was something that he really remembers from, you know, their dinner table that. like that was. And and then the other thing was that his dad would pull out these old records and just, you know, play them. Um, and they would and he would just in front of them or with them, you know, like exegete the music and that that helped Eric understand. Look, as Christians, we're not against the culture. We're not you know, we're not out there, you know, smashing the records in the streets. We're seeking to understand what the culture is is saying, and his dad really demonstrated what that looks like, um, not to run away from the culture, but to seek to understand it and then, you know, apply your faith to it. I just, anyway, I just thought you would appreciate knowing that I do. Um, and sharing Definitely.
1: that with you. yeah. And, and one more thought on that real quick is that the dad who was calling them to not be mediocre Christians himself was not living a life as a mediocre Christian. So if we're going to call our kids to that, we have to make sure that we're not living that at the same time so that, that it's so important i got to see it
0: too so good it's so good all right man i love you thank you so much as always for joining us yeah. blessings What's on your uh, yeah absolutely that's dean and sarah he's the pastor at city church tallahassee also the author of many books uh but the one we talked about today unsaved christians uh it's a great read prior to easter if you want to get ready for all those people who are going to show up on Easter Sunday they're really they're really visitors but they are open to the possibility that Jesus maybe really did rise from the dead how do we help them embrace him for who he really is that they could become who they're really called to be um, as the saved people of God all right we got uh we, we got more coming up next how about uh just a moment of upwards with Max Lucato you're I'm, in, I'm. all right we're gonna um, we're gonna talk with Daniel Bennett about some other headlines um today I, w- I want us to think um for just a moment about what it means to be exceptional when you just hear that word um what what do you hear what's the what's the constellation of things that come to heart and mind? You can text me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four um and before you text, I want you to Um, Like, seriously consider the word. What what does it mean to be exceptional? Um, And what does it mean for Christians to be described as exceptional? What does it mean for Americans to be described as exceptional? Does it mean that we are the exception to the rule? Think about it in that way for just a moment. That's going to be one of our topics of conversation with Daniel Bennett in just a moment. We'll also talk about some Supreme Court cases and get his take on the uh, hearings related to Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who in all likelihood will be uh, voted on this week and affirmed as the president's nominee to the Supreme Court. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Professor Daniel Bennett joins us now from John Brown University, also the Uneasy Citizenship blog. You can find him on Twitter at Daniel R. Ben, Ben with two ends. Daniel, welcome back.
2: Thank you. Good morning.
0: Good morning. All right, I want to um, I want to cover all things Supreme Court. I want your analysis of uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's hearings before the Senate, and I also want your um, your take on. Um, this is a Supreme Court case related to the Texas death row inmate, um, the religious freedom case. So let's start there. Give us some give us you know sort of the over and under on what's
2: going on there. Are you talking about the case or the confirmation right now?
0: Let's start with the case.
2: Great. Yeah, so uh, this this inmate uh, several months ago asked, uh, and he, he is condemned uh, to die. He, he admits that he committed a really brutal crime a long time ago, and he acknowledges that what he did was wrong and what, he deserves this punishment. Um, but since, uh, since uh, becoming incarcerated, he's uh, found the Lord uh, in, in pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clear ways. Uh, he's developed a really close relationship with a pastor there, um, where they meet regularly, they pray together, they, they essentially do devotionals and Bible studies together. And uh, he had a request that during his execution, the pastor is there essentially praying for him, and, and this is important, laying hands on him. Now, this isn't too out of the ordinary for Christians, obviously. It's something we do all the time. But Texas and the, and the, the prison system there said that's kind of a security issue because we, we want to make sure that this environment's pretty controlled. Uh, which is I guess an a- understandable understandable claim to have, uh, so they filed a lawsuit and said look you know you're you 're preventing not only this this uh person from touching the inmate but also have, from having him in the death chamber at all that 's a relatively new policy from Texas um, that you couldn 't have any other type of spiritual advisor in the death in the death chamber um, after a couple of other legal cases that came about, but the Supreme Court ruled eight to one that uh, Texas did not have a reasonable uh, reasonable position to bar this chaplain from the death chamber and from basically granting an exemption to allow the inmate to be touched during the execution. Um, But eight to one, eight to one decision. Uh, Liberal, conservative justices alike all agreed that this was something that we should do for the sake of religious freedom.
0: So one of the things that I acknowledge is that um, for the chaplain, um, the laying on of hands during during this is is going to mean he actually feels the life leave a body mm. and that is um that's going to be a lot for that person to bear that's a lot to bear
2: sure yeah and actually and I should clarify one of the uh one of the issues in this case is uh Texas obviously does have a prison chaplain this is not a prison chaplain this is a pastor mm-hmm. that the The inmate has gotten to know over the years, but he's not employed by the prison system. He is he is a private entity. And that was also part of Texas's uh, claim is that we're letting someone who's not a part of the system into the system. Um, But again, the Supreme Court said that's not a good enough reason to bar this under the First Amendment. But yeah, that's to say nothing of the weightiness of the actual execution that the pastor is going to experience.
0: All right, we have all been watching with great interest. Um well, some of us have been watching, many of us have been paying attention to the summaries of um and the tidbits, um the sound bites from the Supre- or from the nominee uh, to the Supreme Court, um her Senate hearings. Tell us what your observations have been about that uh, about that process or any specifics you want to lift up.
2: Yeah, I mean th- this this set of or this hearing has, has basically gone uh like Previous hearings, not necessarily in terms of substance, but in terms of, of practice, uh, for for the last several Supreme Court nominees, it's really been an effort to not make mistakes, uh, to not to basically run out the clock, so to speak, not give any you know uh, statements that could uh, be fodder for the opposition, not to uh, get into it with senators on specific points that could be used to you know discredit them and their demeanor. And I think Judge Jackson did that pretty well. Uh she was pretty uh pretty calm and, and collected throughout, didn't give a lot of revealing answers on some 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 important or meaningful questions, but again, that's not unique to her. The nominees have been doing that for a long time. I thought these hearings were pretty typical in that respect. Uh several senators tried to, you know, make this about, you know, sentencing issues and maybe some inconsistencies with her record on child sex abuse, these kinds of things. Uh, I, th- I think if you if you look at legal expert analysis, they'll say that was pretty, pretty far gone, including legal expert analysis on the right, actually, who said that's not the right tack for this. Um, so she'll be confirmed. It's just a matter of if she'll get any Republican votes or uh, if this will be a straight party line vote.
0: Any, I, I mean, my expectation is, I mean, I had this conversation with some folks over the weekend who, you know, had some strong feelings about these things. And I said, look, she's going to be seated. I mean, this yeah. she is going to be um, the next justice on the Supreme Court. And so maybe a conversation about um, how her addition to the court um, changes the court. Like, right, you don't add a person to the mix of a group and the group not be changed by that addition, which makes me wonder, do you have any observations now that, um, Amy Coney Barrett has been on the court for, I feel like, a couple of years. Um, and and Neil Gorsuch and um, Brett Kavanaugh, have you, like, have they been on there long enough to have a sense of how they have changed the court? Or is it easier to see how the absence of certain personalities has yeah. changed the court?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So there is a lot of attention paid to the collegiality on the Supreme Court, unlike you know the House of Representatives or the Senate, uh, these are nine people who are going to spend in some cases decades together. They they become sort of family, and you know there's a lot of uh, observations and comments from the justices themselves talking about how how well they tend to get along, uh, how you know they're able to compartmentalize their professional disagreements from their personal. Uh, relationships you know famously Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia diametrically opposed in terms of legal ideologies but were very close personally like their families traveled together they they did things together um outside the court sessions um and so all indications are that Justice Barrett uh, Justice Kavanaugh and and Justice Gorsuch have fit in pretty well there was some reporting that Justice Gorsuch had uh, ruffled some feathers with his decision not to wear a mask uh, during COVID, which alienated Justice Sotomayor. Um, but the court, including those justices, came out and said that that wasn't the case, that was that was mistaken. Uh, so there hasn't really been uh, a, a good example of someone who can really upset that dynamic in quite some time. And again, all indications are that Judge Jackson would probably fit into that system pretty well. you got to remember, too, these justices you know, they all know each other before getting on the court, right? These are all legal elites. They attend the same conferences. They attend the same parties if, if you know, if, if that's what they do. Uh, so it's not like they're total strangers. And I think Judge Jackson fits into that model. Already being in D.C., she's going to have a pretty good connection already.
0: All right. Uh, let's see. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had has two children, Jane and James. Antonin Scalia has nine. I'm thinking yeah. those family trips together, Right. Super fun. Lots of really good Italian food. Like, yeah, now I'm a little jealous. Um, You know, now here's a, you know, here's an interesting uh, conversational opportunity. I wonder what those those next generation people have to say, Um, you know, observations they would make, how they were changed through the relationship that their mom had, let's say, with, um, you know, with the dad of the other. You know what I mean? Like, it might be interesting. I mean, the observations we make about our parents and their relationships and how the people that they interact with and then how we get to see all of that. I mean, it does form us and it certainly informs us.
2: Well, we'll just think about this, because, you know, think of Justice Scalia, who wrote really blistering opinions on the Supreme Court in some pretty important cases where Justice Ginsburg had voted against him. Right. In some cases, actually, he would not necessarily call her out by name, but certainly ridicule and critique her legal position And, you know, his kids would have been old enough, and they're adults now, obviously, uh, that they would have been, you know, reading these things and reading these opinions. And then in the evenings and in the weekends, they'd be spending time together. They'd be taking trips together, going to the opera together. And so I think that's a really important point to say you can have strong convictions and beliefs. You don't need to water those down or hide away. But also, it's almost about stopping at the water's edge and saying, look, we understand these are professional disagreements, but that doesn't mean we can't. Uh, enjoy the company of someone who I otherwise really, really respect. And yes, that's a great example to set, regardless of how old you are.
0: Yeah, just an interesting conversation. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Daniel Bennett in just a moment. We're going to talk about the word exceptionalism. We're going to apply it to America. What does American exceptionalism mean? What does it not mean? And then I'm going to ask us to explore, you know, the thoughts related to attaching the word exceptionalism to the word Christian. Um, Let's just uh, roll those uh, thoughts over in our minds. Um, We will rejoin this conversation with Professor Daniel Bennett in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Daniel Bennett is the department chair of political science, associate professor of political science, and assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University. Um, he joins us regularly at the intersection of political headlines, political thought, political talk, and what it means to be a Christian in the midst of uh, of the days in which we live. So, Daniel, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the word exceptionalism Um, I think that when we hear American exceptionalism used by many, many people, it's grossly misunderstood. So I'd love for you to uh, to talk about what it really means.
2: Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. Uh, So obviously, when we hear exceptionalism today, we tend to think of it in positive ways. Right. Uh, Almost going back to the shining city on a hill idea. Um, that's how a lot of elected officials have tended to use it to talk about, you know, America is the greatest country in the world, the greatest country or the greatest experiment that we've ever had in in self-governance. Uh, and to some extent, I mean, there are positive things, obviously, about the United States uh, relative to other countries in the world, um, especially at the time of its founding protections for religious freedom, protections for individual rights that simply didn't really exist in other parts of the world. Um, so that was exceptional. Um, But when I think of exceptional, I just tend to think of like different in in a lot of in a lot of respects, Um, not necessarily all good, certainly not all bad. um, But America is exceptional in a lot of respects when it comes to its people, its cultures. Um, But that doesn't mean other countries can't be exceptional, too. In fact, really, any country is going to be exceptional for some reason or another
0: yeah it's what makes you the exception to whatever the rule is it's the things that make you distinct it's the It's what differentiates you. That is exceptionalism at its most basic um at its most basic level and so Daniel, I think that when people hear the phrase American exceptionalism, they tend to imagine that um the person using it means America is better mm-hmm. than whoever it is like right the better by comparison. But really, the term exceptional just means these are the ways in which we are different, the ways in which America um, didn't follow the rules of the day or hasn't followed the ways of the world on particular subjects. Um, So can you talk about the things that you think, that you observe, that make America exceptional? What are our distinctives today?
2: Yeah, so I already mentioned the, the, the protection for individual rights going back to the founding era. I think uh, the clear uh, prohibition against state-established uh, churches and a, an establishment effectively of a, of a free market for religious, uh, for religious ideas was a huge departure from the norm. And that continues to today. And there's a lot of scholars out there in sociology and political science who believe that one of the reasons why the United States remains far more religious than its European uh, counterparts, especially in terms of economic development, um, is because of the religious marketplace that we have here in the United States. Uh, There is effectively a way for religious traditions to proselytize freely, to innovate, to uh, seek converts in a way that hasn't existed throughout most of world history. And that, even though, you know, I I think we've discussed Ryan Burge's work on the rise of the nuns in the past, but, you know, even even accounting for that, the United States remains incredibly religious uh, compared to the rest of the developed world. Um, I think also uh, the The different cultures that we have in the United States, Uh, I I compare the United States sometimes to the country of of Japan, you know, we're both developed countries, very, you know, highly, uh, very, very wealthy with respect to the rest of the world. Japan is overwhelmingly homogenous in terms of culture, uh, overwhelmingly ethnically Japanese. Uh, But then you look to the United States and, you know, just within a few years, I think the United States is going to be a majority minority country where you have uh, the white population now being less than 50% of the total population. That's remarkable in developed countries around the world. And that's exceptional. And so I think there is a tendency to see the term American exceptionalism through the lens uh, of your of your ideology. Um, Traditionally, I think in the last, I don't know, 20 years, Conservatives have been really defensive of American exceptionalism and uh, critical of, of political liberals who say it with almost disdain or in a pejorative sense. I think that's mistaken. I think we have to look at exceptionalism, like you were talking about, not necessarily as a blind compliment or as an overwhelming criticism, but simply as a statement of fact that there are things that make the United States different. And that makes the United States better in some cases, and it makes the United States weaker in some cases. But we have to acknowledge the differences.
0: Um, it also, I think, makes us responsible in unique ways. Might be another way, of, like the things that make us different also make us, I think, uh, more responsible for others. And in the blessed to be a blessing um, interpretation of things. So, you know, the fact that we don't live in a neighborhood of nations that's constantly threatening us, I think means we have some responsibility for uh, a different different level of responsibility for people who do live under constant threat. Mm. Um, I think the fact that we do live in a nation that uh, doesn't just have the natural resources to, you know, Grow enough food for our own people, but the fact that we live in a huge breadbasket and and have attained a level of peace and prosperity, that means we can produce a lot of food. I think that makes us responsible um, to be doing so for others who do not live in, let's say, um, uh, you know, either a, a place or a place on the globe where they can produce a sufficient amount of food for their people. Like I, so I just think that with. With our exceptionalism, um, with the things that make us different, also comes some responsibility.
2: And this is, I think that that's a great point. I think this is where uh, Christians in this country can view our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and talk, you know, think about the global church and, and, and think about it in, that, in, in those exact terms. If we had neighbors in our communities who were hurting, who were struggling, you know, in our churches, I hope, I hope it's a case that the, the local church would step up and, you know, provide and be a blessing to those people. Um, But man, you know, the the people in the American church today, you know, we have that opportunity to do that at the global level. And, you know, there's a reason why the church Christians in the U.S. are overwhelmingly, you know, more charitable than than the, the average American citizen in terms of giving, in terms of uh, in terms of- you know giving obviously to missions organizations, but we can't uh be selective in that sense. we have to say look you know this this applies you know all over the world it, it applies to it applies to people in all parts of the all parts of the globe um, because of the blessings that we have uh because of our exceptional identity
0: all right so i um in anticipation of this conversation uh jotted down a quick list um because Christian exceptionalism would ultimately be the conversation I would want to get to with someone. So I'd want to talk about human exceptionalism having having to do with our uniqueness in the universe and as human beings. Um, I would want to talk about Israelite exceptionalism coming from the fact of being God's chosen people, among all others. I would want to talk about American exceptionalism and how it refers to this nation uh, you know, as an exception to all others. But I'd really want to get to a conversation about Christian exceptionalism um, and I'd love, if you're listening right now, I'd love for you to just read the New Testament through that lens one time. Um, read it through the lens of what makes Christians different. What To what are Christians the exception to the rule of the day? How are they the exception to the the religious rule of the day? How are they the exception to um, the rulers, uh, the powers of their day? What makes Christians distinct, different, and unique? And with those differences, what responsibilities come? There you go. That's your, uh, that's your lesson on Christian exceptionalism, and I'll, I'll give you the answer tomorrow. I'll give you my answer tomorrow. How's that sound? How's that for setting up people to have to listen again? Amazing. Yeah, there you go. Um, Daniel, as always, thank you so very much. Um, really value the conversations we have. You can read what Daniel's writing on his Uneasy Citizenship blog. You can also find him at John Brown University. Um, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right. I can't believe that it is almost the end of March, Um, but that means that you do have a couple of days left to get in on the Simple Path to Following Jesus giveaway. We're actually giving away, I don't know, something like a hundred copies of Rusty George's A Simple Path to Following Jesus. It's a great book that helps us learn about what it really means to be a Christian, um, discover how we might more effectively share our faith with others. So if you have not done so already, like TikTok, the days are winding down on this particular giveaway. You go to MyFaithRadio.com. You're looking for um, the sign up for a simple path to following Jesus giveaway. One more opportunity there that runs out in the next couple of days is the virtual access package to the Set Apart Conference. Yes, where you get to hear me talk, um, but more importantly, you get to hear Susie Larson talk and lots of other great people. All right, um, so go to MyFaithRadio.com and I'm gonna sign up for all the great stuff we got going on. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way
1: you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.